Former President Trump opts out of the GOP debate and sits down with Tucker Carlson instead. Hear what topics were discussed in the video already viewed over 140 million times. Former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani is among the latest co-defendants to surrender in Georgia. What Giuliani has to say and updates from the Fulton County Jail. Millions of dollars reportedly missing in financial disclosures for a President Biden super PAC. One group is pushing the FEC to investigate. The leader of the Wagner Group is reportedly dead. Find out the circumstances under which it may have happened, to which President Biden says he's not surprised. And a historic moment for India as it becomes only the fourth country to land on the moon's surface with a landing described as flawless. Now for a little deconstruction of the first GOP debate. We'll be discussing some of the candidate stances on the Ukraine war and China with an author who has a unique military business and academic pedigree. Raven Harrison, political strategist and former congressional candidate from Texas joins us live. Raven, good morning and it's great to have you with us. A big topic at the debate was the Ukraine war. Which candidate do you think laid out the most sensible approach to the war in terms of American interests? I think, and good morning to you, I think that Vivek Ramaswamy, hands down, ran away with this. It was clear, it was concise. He laid out uh, an agenda that was America first, which was surprisingly not uh, contagious among the other GOP candidates. But he basically went in and explained how the money that we're spending in Ukraine, the billions that we've already spent when we have Americans at home who are suffering. He brought up Maui. He brought up the devastation right now in Hawaii with a thousand missing and how our priority has to be America first. That's the peace through strength. Raven, was China talked about enough at the debate? Not at all. Not for the, the threat that they pose to America. When you're talking about whether it's talking about Biden and his green energy policies, 86% of the batteries that the electric cars and things run on are produced by China. They've now formed an alliance with Russia who we're, we are now getting oil from because we are not energy independent. We are funding a war against Russia, but then asking them for oil. So we, these are the two entities, Ch China and Russia, we cannot allow to form any kind of unholy alliance. So we need to be taking that as a threat it is. Uh, so we've got a lot of, even with the border, we have 30% of those who have come through the border are Chinese nationals, and we know that's where the primary fentanyl is for ground zero. So we have got to take them as the threat that they are. So why wasn't China talked about enough? Was it the moderators not picking into this topic enough? I think the moderators, as you had correctly stated, kind of lost control of this for a minute. Uh, it became a little bit of a free-for-all. But I think at the end of it, um, what they're missing is this is the, the biggest threat. We talked about Ukraine and the money, but we are not talking about this has been a priority since before President Trump went into office. He talked about the threat that China posed, our dependency on China. And now we know that they're they're getting in their oil in a, in a position where we are very weak. So this is something that should have been a top priority. And I think Vivek Ramaswamy was the only one who really highlighted that he's not establishment, that these are all politicians who've been there for years vying to solve the problems that some of them had a hand in creating. Political strategist Raven Harrison, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Have a great day. 
Data on how many people watch the debate on Fox is expected out today. Meanwhile, former President Trump's interview with Tucker Carlson has racked up over 140 million views online. Trump opted out of participating in the RNC event hosted by Fox. Trump told Carlson it's because the network hasn't been particularly friendly to him and because of his wide lead in the polls. The GOP frontrunner spoke of the challenges he faced as president and now as a candidate, as well as what his priorities would be if elected again. Some topics discussed include Jeffrey Epstein, the multiple indictments against Trump, and Biden and his policies, including the push for green energy. Watch. The policies are so bad that if they didn't cheat, they couldn't get elected. Who wants open borders? Who wants high taxes? Who wants high interest rates? Who wants to not be able to use a gas stove? I think the people of our country uh, don't get enough credit for how smart they are. And I, I'm not sure I would have said this 10 years ago, but they get it, you know? They yeah. really get it. When somebody gets indicted, your poll numbers go down. When somebody gets indicted, you announce, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'll be leaving to spend time with my family and to fight for the rest of my life on this stuff. But you're out of politics. I got indicted four times. All trivia, nonsense. Carlson posted the interview on social media platform X just minutes before the GOP debate began. The video had over 70 million views in its first 30 minutes. And now we have an update from the Fulton County Jail in Georgia, where at least nine defendants have surrendered ahead of Trump's planned surrender today. And today's Melina Wisecup has updates for us on the ground. Melina, what's happened today? What can you tell us? Good morning, Kevin and Evans. So former President Trump will be here to surrender to this Fulton County Jail at some point today to those 13 charges brought against him by the district attorney here in Georgia. Now, we do expect to see a press conference here at 10 a.m., a rally for him, rather not a press conference, uh, where Trump supporters will, will gather just to show their support ahead of his arrival. Um, there are, as you can see behind me, actually, there are already some Trump supporters here. Those are blacks for Trump. They're here very bright and early ahead of that rally. So we can tell the support here. They really want to show it on the ground as the former president is expected to arrive. Now, as you mentioned, there are at least nine defendants who have already surrendered here. One of the most notable being Rudy Giuliani, who's the former mayor of New York City. He's also Trump's former attorney. He surrendered here yesterday around noon. He was released on a $150,000 bail. His charges are slightly less than Trump. He has 12. Trump has 13. Now, remember, Giuliani was one of the lead figures on the front lines here in Georgia challenging the election results. And when he left the jail yesterday and spoke to reporters, he did not seem regretful at all about challenging those election results. He, in fact, said that he believes the district attorney is violating the Constitution. We'll show you what Giuliani had to say to reporters, as well as what his lawyer told me about their defense strategy in this case. He has uh, violated uh, people's First Amendment right to advocate. Uh, the government to petition the government for grievances like an election they believe was poorly conducted or falsely conducted. People have a right to believe that in America. If you need to know what this is all about, the FBI stole my iCloud account. And you know when they went and stole it? The day that I began representing Donald Trump four years ago. You know when they gave it back? The day after I represented Donald Trump. The racketeering statute is so broadly drafted, it gives the state uh, an easier opportunity to get in all kinds of evidence and things run related. So that's probably going to be the, the first point of attack to look at the RICO charges. So tell us more about Trump's in impending In addition to appearance. Rudy Giuliani, 
Yeah, Kevin, we'll get to that in just one moment, but I do want to mention something important. Uh, Something important that's happening here, in in addition to Rudy Giuliani, uh, Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is expected to surrender by that Friday deadline. Previously, we weren't sure if we would see him, but a federal judge just yesterday did deny his request to delay his surrender until sometime next week because he does have a hearing on Monday about moving his case to federal court. Now, to get to your question, Kevin, about what we can expect to see when the the former president gets here. We do expect a rather quick process. We're still tracking the timing of when he plans to come. We've seen some reports that he'll come around, uh, you know, tonight during prime time, but we're still trying to confirm that information. As far as what's going to happen inside the jail, we expect it to be very quick in and out, just like it was for all the past defendants. He does already have a $200,000 bond in place, which will make it quicker as far as paperwork goes. Now, as for a mugshot and fingerprints, the sheriff says that he will be treated just like anybody else. However, Trump is different because he does have Secret Service protection. So these are the things we will be watching as the former president is expected to make his arrival here at some point today. Kevin. Yes, a lot going on in Georgia. And thank you for that update, Melina. We'll certainly be checking in with you very soon. And millions of dollars reportedly missing in financial disclosures for a super PAC for President Biden. It's prompting calls for an investigation. And zooming in on campaign finances ahead of the 2024 presidential election, former President Trump has raised over $53 million since the start of 2023. We talked to one of Trump's former top economic advisors about the key factors needed to secure the White House when we come back. Welcome back. Millions of dollars are reportedly missing in financial disclosures for a super PAC for President Biden, and it's prompting calls for an investigation. Here's the story. The Washington Free Beacon first reported on a discrepancy in financial disclosures for Future Forward, a super PAC for President Biden. Future Forward said it received $3.4 million from its associated nonprofit, Future Forward USA Action. But Future Forward USA Action said in tax documents that it passed $15.3 million to Future Forward. That leaves $11.9 million missing. Chauncey McLean, who worked on former President Obama's presidential campaigns, leads both Future Forward and its nonprofit. The National Legal and Policy Center, or NLPC, filed a complaint with the Federal Election Commission. It's requesting an investigation into the discrepancy because it appears to violate federal law. NLPC counsel Paul Kaminar told the Epic Times, Future Forward has some explaining to do with respect to the non-disclosure. Top Biden administration officials have praised Future Forward. Jennifer O'Malley Dillon is a White House official who served as the president's 2020 campaign manager. She said the super PAC was critical in helping Biden then and would again play a key role in 2024. Future Forward did not respond to requests for comment. On the topic of campaign finances, former President Trump has raised over $53 million since the start of 2023. But there are concerns about a lack of support from mega donors. We hear from an economist who used to work on Trump's campaign to learn more about this and which factor is going to be key for the nominee to secure the White House. Joining me now is Steve Moore, the co-founder of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. Why do you suspect mega donors who gave to Trump's campaign in 2020 have yet to donate to the super PACs that support Trump and his GOP rivals? Well, look, I think Trump will have plenty of money as he buys for the presidency 
in 2024. Um, he is going to be, I think, well-funded. I think, uh, by the way, there's no race where money is less important than the presidential race because Donald Trump is on TV every minute of every day. Uh, and so um, I don't think money is going to be a real factor in this race. And Steve, why is it that money is less important in a presidential race, as you were saying? Uh, because if you're somebody like Donald Trump or Joe Biden, you're on TV every day, you can get your message out. Whereas if you're running for a congressional race, people don't even know who you are. I mean, I worked on the 2016 campaign uh, for Trump, and I got to tell you, Trump didn't spend very much money at all. And I used to ask him about that. He said, well, why do I need to spend money on TV commercials? Turn on the TV. And I turn on the TV, and who do you see? Donald Trump. You know, he dominated the media. He's an incredible marketer. Uh, and so, and people know who he is. They know what he stands for. And so he doesn't have to spend a lot of money telling people that. Where does Trump's financial support for his campaign come from primarily? Well, that, that's the thing that's sort of interesting about Trump is that he, he has more small donors, millions of small donors, uh, more so than any other candidate uh, in the field of the Republican field or even Joe Biden. You know, Biden is the one who's the candidate of the very wealthy donors, and uh, Trump is the candidate who's the you know, the candidate of the little man. Wealthy donors who supported Trump at one time have yet to back him this time around. Do you suspect that's due to as many indictments or an uncertain GOP primary or some other reason? Well, I think that there are a lot of Republican donors who have worries that Trump is not the best candidate to, to go against the Democrats. Um, that, that's very similar, by the way, to what happened in 2016 where throughout the 2016 campaign and throughout the 2016 primary, a lot of the big donors stood on the sideline and said, uh, Trump can't win, Trump can't win. Remember, that was the, I mean, the media was saying Trump had a one in a hundred chance of becoming president. And so Trump has a way of defi defying the odds. Um, and I think uh, the bottom line is he'll have as much money as he needs. Joe Biden will have as much money as he needs. This, this uh, race is not going to be decided based on who has more money. And in light of this, as of July, Biden had already raised $72 million in funding, which was more than Trump at the time, but it was less than Trump had raised about that time in the 2020 election cycle. And Steve, what do you think is the most critical thing that Americans need to be looking at in this election right now? Oh, I don't think there's any question that it's going to be about which presidential candidate can rebuild the American economy. Uh, look, we have had high inflation. We've got an out-of-control border. We've got a record high national debt. And 75% uh, of Americans think the economy is headed in the wrong direction. So I think it will be the economy stupid this time around. And of course, we saw Trump's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and as well as Biden's infrastructure passage. So there's going to be a lot to look at there. Steve Moore, co-founder of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Thank you for your time. Thank you. We have more analysis and highlights from the debate last night in the second half. So please stay tuned for that. And coming up, the U.S. pushes back on China's re-education program for Tibetan students that has seen a million children torn from their families. And the leader of the Wagner Group is reportedly dead. Find out the circumstances under which it may have happened, to which President Biden says he's not surprised. It's good to have you back with us. Around a million Tibetan children are in Chinese state-run boarding schools. Now the U.S. is stepping up sanctions against the Chinese communist regime. NTD's Sam Wong has the details on that and bills to protect U.S. land.
Washington plans to block the visas of Chinese officials who are involved in the forced assimilation of Tibetan children. According to the State Department, it impacts current and former Chinese officials, in particular those who are involved in state-run boarding schools in Tibet. The UN reports that around one million Tibetan children have been forcibly removed from their families due to China's re-education policy. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said on Tuesday, these coercive policies seek to eliminate Tibet's distinct linguistic, cultural and religious traditions among younger generations of Tibetans. He then urged the regime to end the repressive policy all throughout China. Last December, Washington also sanctioned two high-ranking Chinese officials over human rights violation in Tibet. On the local level, lawmakers across 33 states have put forth 81 bills this year, all aiming to restrict Chinese citizens from buying properties near military bases. Some of those bills are now passed in states such as Alabama, Idaho, and Virginia. Those in support see the land as a national security interest, noting that the Chinese regime could use the land to spy on critical U.S. infrastructure nearby. Additionally, they also fear that the country's food supply could be in jeopardy if too much agricultural lands ended up in the hands of foreign entities. The bills gained attention back in February following a Chinese spy balloon flying across the U.S. before Washington shot it down. Sam Wang, NTD News. In more international coverage, Russian authorities say mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin was listed as a passenger in the fatal plane crash yesterday. According to Russian officials, the crash happened Wednesday evening north of Moscow, leaving no survivors. Entity's Jason Perry has the details. Russian mercenary group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin died in a plane crash on Wednesday evening. That's according to a channel affiliated with the Wagner Group. Russian state media confirms that Prigozhin was listed as a passenger and there were no survivors. Russia's emergency situations ministry said in a statement that the plane was traveling from Moscow to St. Petersburg and had crashed in the Tver region. Images from FlightRadar24.com show an unidentified plane flying northwest of Moscow, then disappearing from the screen. President Biden was asked to share his thoughts on the tragic incident. I was asked about this by you. I said, I'd be careful what I turned to what I wrote you. I don't know for a fact what happened, but I'm not surprised. Prigozhin was known for calling out the Russian military, saying the Wagner group was not getting enough support. He also said the Ukraine war was based on lies and that the narrative Russia used to justify the war was not true. In late June, Prigozhin led a mutiny in Russia against Russia's top military commanders. Along the way, the Wagner Group shot down a number of military helicopters, killing Russian pilots. And what surprised many people was Putin gave Prigozhin amnesty for trying to overthrow the Russian military, which Putin said could have caused a civil war. Prigozhin later said the Wagner Group would no longer fight in Ukraine and would fight in Africa to make Russia great. And just this past Monday, Prigozhin posted a video online, which may have very well been his last. We are working. The temperature is 122 degrees, everything as we like. Wagner PMC conducts reconnaissance and search actions, makes Russia even greater on all continents and Africa more free. Meanwhile, the war continues on and Russia's capital continues to be attacked with drones. Russian authorities said on Wednesday three people were killed on the border of Ukraine in one of the latest drone strikes. Jason Perry, NTD News. 
Russia's aviation agency published the names of all 10 people on board the downed plane. The list includes Prigozhin and that of Dmitry Yutkin, his right-hand man who helped found the Wagner mercenary group. Russian investigators say they've opened a criminal investigation into the crash. Some unnamed sources told Russian media they believe the plane was shot down by one or more surface-to-air missiles. And Tidi could not confirm that. Critics of President Putin have suggested without evidence that Putin is behind the crash. And now some headlines from around the world. A Moscow court today extended the pretrial detention of journalist Evan Gershkovich by three months. Gershkovich is a U.S. citizen and a Wall Street Journal reporter. He was arrested by Russia's Federal Security Service in March on charges of espionage. Both Gershkovich and the Journal deny the charges. A Norwegian energy firm inaugurated the world's largest floating offshore wind farm yesterday. The High Wind Tampen Wind Farm comprises 11 wind turbines. Its 88 megawatts of capacity will supply nearby oil and gas platforms and cut CO2 emissions. During a live TV broadcast, a fire-damaged tree in Turkey fell onto a car with an emergency worker in it. Video footage shows a reporter speaking live on air as the branch came down. The worker was taken to the nearest hospital with fractures to his legs. Some 90 people suffered injuries from the wildfire in Turkey. No deaths were reported. North Korea's second attempt to place a spy satellite into orbit failed yesterday. The rocket booster experienced a problem with its third stage. Space authorities vowed to try again in October. The nuclear-armed country says it plans a fleet of satellites to monitor moves by U.S. and South Korean troops. And just ahead, we have post-debate coverage on the first GOP primary. What are the biggest moments and who stood out? We hear from both Republicans and Democrats. Organized burglaries targeting large retail stores in Los Angeles County. Find out why critics of the local district attorney are saying a certain policy is contributing to this trend after the break. Welcome back. Eight candidates squared off at the first GOP primary debate. Entity's Capitol Report host Steve Lance spoke to a team of political analysts. Here are some of the highlights. Jenny Beth, uh, if we could get your thoughts, uh, high-level overview, winners and losers tonight. Well, I think that the winner of the debate was man who was not in the room, President Trump on debate. Um, it, it looked like the adult in the room was actually not in the room and he was having a longer, more in-depth conversation with Tucker Carlson on Twitter. Well, obviously, the uh, a, a number of the candidates went after uh, Beth Ramaswamy, uh, I think because he's higher up in the polls, but also because I think they, they personally found him uh, kind of obnoxious and, and condescending. Uh, I think a lot of things that uh, Vivek said were probably sounded really good. How he's going to get rid of teachers unions in the country and get rid of all these apartments is uh, really impossible. Um, so he said a lot of things that sounded good. I think that's going to appeal to a lot of, uh -oh. of, of people. Uh, what was fascinating to me is the two individuals who probably uh, were acting the most presidential in that they weren't getting into these kind of fist fights or knife fights with each other. Uh, were Governor Ron DeSantis uh, and Senator Tim Scott, uh, with, I think, an edge to Governor DeSantis. I also think that Donald Trump made a tactical error by not participating. 
because if there were nine people on that stage rather than eight, uh, given the time constraints, Trump would have absolutely dominated the event. Uh, it would have all been about him, and no one else would have been able to get in a word edgewise. You can see the full version of that riveting discussion at NTD.com. And in other news, South Carolina's new heartbeat abortion ban is allowed to stay in place. The state Supreme Court ruled yesterday to uphold the new law. In a four-to-one ruling, the South Carolina Supreme Court found the state's constitution's protections against unreasonable invasions of privacy did not include a right to abortion. The court also found the law was reasonable in relation to the state's interest in safeguarding the unborn. South Carolina lawmakers passed the bill in May largely along party lines. It bans abortions after fetal heart activity is detected, usually around six weeks of pregnancy. The latest court ruling came after it struck down an earlier version of the bill in January. In Los Angeles, there are more instances of flash mob robberies targeting large retail stores. That's where a group of thieves grab as many items as possible, often exceeding $100,000 in value. A countywide policy established under District Attorney George Gascon is being criticized as a contributing factor to this trend. Entity's Jack Bradley has more. Several organized burglaries at luxury outlets in Los Angeles County have resulted in the theft of hundreds of thousands of dollars in merchandise over the past few weeks. Some of these suspects are repeat offenders who were released from custody due to LA's zero cash bail policy. I spoke with former LA District Attorney Steve Cooley to break it down. The zero bail policy in many instances lets out criminals with a mere citation. They never even get process completely. And they then are out and about and able to recommit their crimes. Uh, almost 15 to 20 percent of all those who are released on zero bail, instead of being on bail, uh, commit a crime again. That's called recidivism. Bail is in the Constitution of the United States of America. Its purposes are well established. Basically, under the penal code, bail is set to assure the future appearance of a charged criminal. If you don't have bail, many criminals will either recidivate, commit a new crime, or they just won't appear in the future because they have no incentive. Do you think the criminals know about these policies? Oh, yes. Uh, these criminals, they have a network. They're smart people. They, they talk back and forth even when they're incarcerated. Um, one of them, as, as you probably recall, was videotaped uh, uh, giving a toast to George Gascon because he thought his sentence uh, was going to be greatly reduced. Uh, others talk about it, how Gascon's policies are going to help them. They talk about it on the jail uh, phones that are recorded. Uh, one individual said he was going to tattoo Gascon's name on his forehead because of the benefits Gascon is giving him as a criminal. 97% of his own prosecutors voted to support his recall. And I also spoke with Tim Leinberger, the spokesman for the campaign to recall District Attorney George Gascon, which is suing the county registrar to certify the recall petition, saying that many of the rejected signatures were valid. He says it's policies like zero bail that led to the recall attempt. What they'll tell you is, you shouldn't criminalize poverty. And I think everybody agrees with that general point. But the bigger point is you need to have a threat assessment of the individual. So cash bail, no cash bail, like all of George Gascon's policies, it's a one-size-fits-all policy. It doesn't take into account the danger of the individual. Uh, it doesn't take account 
their likely likelihood to reoffend, like the individuals that you covered in your news story recently that were released the day after they committed a smash and grab robbery on the same day that a smash and grab robbery task force was announced, right? Um, so no cash bail, again, it's just another little piece of the system that tells people, hey, if I do it, I'm just out immediately. And it doesn't take into account the individual cases and potential threat assessments that apply in those circumstances. There is reason for hope. Uh, if you saw what happened in San Francisco, those policies were rejected by some of the most liberal and progressive voters in America. I truly believe that crime and public safety are nonpartisan issues. In Los Angeles, we had over half of our signers on the petition to recall George Gascon were Democrats. Over half of our donors uh, and the donations that came in were from Democrats as well. Um, so of, in, in a very polarized uh, political society that we live in right now, possibly the one issue that is uniting people is crime and their desire to be safe in their community. So hopefully that will continue to reverberate and you'll see change uh, as more elections play out. NTD reached out to the L.A. County District Attorney's Office for a response to allegations that no cash bail contributes to a rise in crime. We also reached out to the County Registrar's Office regarding allegations of improperly rejected recall votes. We have not heard back yet. And up next, chipmaker NVIDIA doubling its revenue on the back of the AI boom. We have the latest from NTD business host Don Ma. And Hollywood writers say the studios are trying to make them turn on each other. Find out why they've rejected the latest deal when we come back. Welcome back. The boom in generative AI technologies is in no way slowing down. The demand grows and the latest beneficiary is chipmaker NVIDIA. Here to discuss this is NTD business host Don Ma. Good morning, Don. It's great to have you on. Morning, Kevin. Pleasure to be here. Chipmaker company NVIDIA just reported earnings, and all eyes are on the company amid the AI boom we're seeing. So, Don, how did NVIDIA perform last quarter? Well, let me just say, it looks like the artificial intelligence boom continues uh, to fuel a blockbuster year for, uh, for NVIDIA. So, in the earnings report, uh, it said... It, it had year-over-year -year sales growth of 101%. It, it literally doubled its growth doubled on the back of the ai boom so this this is a new company record for nvidia its stock jumped as much as nine percent in after hours trading yesterday it's it's amazing that is incredible it seems like the interest in ai is alive and well does nvidia expect the ai hype to continue to last in the next year yeah, it seems like the company is still quite optimistic about AI's future. The company saw $13.5 billion in revenue in the second quarter. And for the next quarter, it's forecasting revenue of $16 billion. So, you know, it's, it's optimistic. Its chief financial officer says demand for their AI-related services is tremendous across industries and customers. The CEO says that uh, companies worldwide are transi transitioning to advanced computing and generative AI, and the race is on, so everything looks good on the AI front. You know, based on what he's saying, and I think the AI hype is not going to go bust anytime soon. Hmm, some interesting ideas in terms of investing in stocks. So anything else for us, Don? 
Yeah, uh, just some figures from the stock market. Uh, shares of Peloton, the largest interactive fitness platform in the world, nosedived over 20% to a record low. That's on the heels of post-COVID declines in bike sales, a recall of over 2 million bikes, and a $75 million settlement with Dish Network Foot Locker. Um, Foot Locker shares also tanked 35%. Uh, the sportswear retailer lowered its annual forecast because of weak consumer demand due to inflation. And as well, Macy's reported a sharp uptick in the number of customers not paying their credit card bills. Macy's credit card sales are down 36% this year, and it may be a bigger problem, a part of a bigger problem at least. Moody says credit card and car loan delinquencies have surpassed pre-COVID numbers. Now, analysts attributed to growing financial stress on consumers. Um, but yeah, uh, on that note, that's all from me this morning. Very interesting updates, Don, host of NTD Business. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Hollywood studios have proposed a deal to end the writer's strike, but the Writers Guild has rejected it, accusing the studios of trying to make the, striker, make the strikers turn on each other. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Hollywood studios have proposed a deal to end the ongoing strike by writers. The president of the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, Carol Lombardini, says its priority is to end the strike and end the hardships that so many people and businesses that service the industry are experiencing. The proposal includes the highest wage increase for the Writers Guild of America in 35 years, a compounded 13% increase over a three-year contract. Certain writers could get a 15% increase in their minimum rate. The studios say this could mean that for some, their pay could be over $9,000 a week for up to 19 weeks. And written material produced by artificial intelligence would not be considered literary material. Also, writers would get viewership data, so they would know how many people were watching their content. That is not a bad offer. If normal people read that it's 14000 a week for a writer in the writer's room, or 12,000, then you lost a sense of reality what the normal income situation is. Producer and director Uwa Ball has worked with actors like Jason Statham, Ben Kingsley, and Michelle Rodriguez. He's trying to cast Wesley Snipes in his new movie, but can't because of the strikes. He says we shouldn't forget that many of the strikers are very blessed in comparison with the rest of the world. I feel like they like they're fighting for the small worker, but they're not. I know a lot of poor people, they're suffering now. You know, gaffers, electricians, drivers, catering companies, in LA restaurants have massive problems now. Stuff like this. The Writers Guild has rejected the offer. It says the proposal contains limitations, loopholes, and omissions, which fail to protect writers. The Guild accused the studios of being disingenuous and trying to get them to cave. They're dragging this out. Um, why, I don't know, because this means nobody's working. Actress Laura Ulrico is striking with the Screen Actors Guild. She says she wants the writers and actors to hold out until they get a fair deal. She herself has been affected by the strikes. There have been a few um, gigs I've been able to do. There's some commercial projects. I'm a hand model in a voiceover thing I was able to do. I do audiobooks too. So there's a few things, but it's not much. It's not how we make our living. On the side, Orico also runs a PR agency called Laura Orico Public Relations. And aside from actors and writers, film critics are also hurt. It's pretty bad. Obviously, with the actors and writers on strike, 
the press junket and interview opportunities are becoming much more slim. Film critic Sean Bowman believes the offer was a step in the right direction. He says the longer the strike goes, the more everyone is hurt, including him. It's especially the case with it heading into award season and festival season, because there are a lot of film festivals where they tend to be cash cows for film critics like myself, and they're not going to be as profitable this year. The Writers Guild of America says it will soon release a detailed description of the negotiations. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Just ahead, India makes history by becoming the fourth country to successfully land on the moon and on only its second attempt. That and more right after the break. Welcome back. India made history yesterday as it became the fourth country ever to land on the moon. The live event was watched by tens of millions. It's India's second attempt at a moon landing, and it comes less than a week after Russia's Luna 25 mission failed. NTD's Kost Hemenes has more on the story. It was a remarkable day for India. Scientists and officials clapped and cheered as the Chandrayaan-3 spacecraft landed. On top of being only the fourth country to successfully conduct a moon landing, India became the first country to ever land on the unexplored south pole of the moon. Photographs of the descent were shared by India's space research organization. This achievement not only marks India's presence on the moon, but also symbolizes the aspirations of 1.4 billion Indians. Beyond that, it's a historic moment for humanity as we venture into uncharted territory near the moon's south pole. The live event was watched by around 70 million people on the Indian Space Research Organization's YouTube page, including Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who watched the landing from South Africa, where he is attending a BRICS summit. People cheered in the streets, waved flags and danced in celebration. The landing has been described as flawless. When, when it is such a tough journey for going to moon and landing, soft landing, which is very difficult for any nation to achieve today, even with the advancement of technology, and we achieving it in just two, two missions. The first mission had a narrow miss, and now we achieved it so perfectly. The Chandrayaan-3 is expected to remain functional for two weeks. It will run a series of experiments including a spectrometer analysis of the mineral composition of the lunar surface. The landing has boosted India's confidence for future voyages and to extend its reach even beyond the boundaries of the moon to Mars and possibly Venus. Cost MNS, NTD News. And to end the show, we want to show you the only one of its kind. That's what zoo officials are saying about a giraffe living in a Tennessee zoo. Bright Zoo in Tennessee is home to the world's only reticulated giraffe without spots. The female giraffe was born there last month. According to local media, the last known recorded spotless giraffe was born at a Japanese zoo in 1972. The zoo was asking the public via social media to vote on the giraffe's name. Results will be published after the Labor Day voting deadline. And that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. So shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Kevin Hogan.